Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Apotheosis. Part 1. Apotheosis is a Greek word meaning to transform into a god, which is sometimes meant metaphorically and sometimes meant quite literally. Obviously, since this is the SCP universe, which is no stranger to godlike entities, the apotheosis we'll be talking about here is literal, and on an unprecedented scale. In the apotheosis canon, large portions of humanity become akin to gods, and the Foundation finds itself struggling to maintain normalcy in a drastically different world. I'll be honest and say right away that if you're looking for sparse, dark horror, you won't really find it here, and the apotheosis canon leans far closer to X-Men comics than Lovecraft stories. If that excites you though, then you're in for a treat. Apotheosis begins with SCP-3396, which is described as a Category 4 extra-dimensional entity which exists as a gestalt of physically and metaphysically mutagenic symbiotes that currently inhabit and affect approximately 6% of the global population. That's a bit of a word salad, but basically this is the entity that is responsible for altering humanity, currently affecting 6% of the population. The central nexus of this alien entity is located around 75 kilometers southeast of Death Valley in the Mojave Desert. Visually, it appears as a massive structure resembling both a tree and an insect, 27 meters tall and 23 meters wide, typically iridescent blue-green in color, although this can vary. The entity is selectively tangible, meaning that normal physical interactions with it have proved impossible. This central nexus of the entity releases a luminous blue-green fluid from its primary trunk and branches, which pools at its base. Exposure to the entity or this fluid results in dramatic changes in biological organisms, which are both unpredictable and highly variable. Organisms develop additional organs and tissues throughout their body, which are luminous and blue-green in color, and share the entity's selective intangibility. All of these new growths are internal, though they may be displayed on the body's exterior at random. Humans affected by 3396 retain their personalities, memories, and mental faculties, although it is possible that their mental faculties can be amplified by the changes. In other words, affected subjects are still themselves, just better in some way, which makes them potentially pretty dangerous. The Foundation's testing starts by dropping one drop of the fluid onto the head of a bearded dragon reptile, which causes it to dramatically grow over the course of three hours. The lizard finishes growing at a total length of 25 meters and an approximate weight of 5,000 kilograms. Additionally, the specimen displayed widened limbs, a mottled and porous surface texture, 
and a number of large dorsal vents, which continually released a mixture of spores and toxic gases. The lizard became completely docile though, not even reacting to physical examination, and skin samples yielded genetic results extremely similar to a wide variety of fungi, including a handful of deadly specimens. Next, a golden retriever was injected with a small amount of the fluid, causing it to lose all of its fur over two hours, and develop horn-like structures across its body. Of course, the foundation proceeded to vivisect the dog, finding various new organs inside of its body, but fortunately the vivisection failed to terminate the dog, which regenerated from all damage, and their behavior was unaltered. Time for human testing then, on a female aged 28, with some of the 3396 fluid applied to the skin of their lower arm. The subject's skin quickly absorbed all of the fluid, but there were no physical changes apparent. When asked if the subject noticed anything different, she replied that she understands firepower. An extremely large variety of rotary cannon appeared in her hands, which she proceeded to use to fire upon Foundation personnel and breach containment. On her way out, she was struck by return fire from security, causing her body to fragment and produce violent explosions, which didn't seem to affect her whatsoever. Fragmented pieces of her body from weapon fire continued to explode and transform into different high-powered weapons, and she managed to easily escape, killing 37 personnel in the process. Well, that took a turn for the worse, but the Foundation is nothing if not perseverant, so they reinforced the testing chamber and brought in another D-Class, a 42-year-old male. The D-Class inhaled fumes produced by the fluid, with nothing seeming to happen over the course of three hours. Suddenly, four exact copies of the D-Class appeared in the testing chamber, and all five simultaneously stated, only fools like you would see the blessing of magic as a curse. The five entities then joined hands, fusing together into one massive organism with ten arms, a central mass of flesh, and dozens of levitating structures resembling disembodied hands, each with an eye in the palm. A large volume of water then appeared in the testing chamber and began swirling, obscuring the entity from view. When the fluid stopped, the entity had vanished, with its current whereabouts unknown. The Foundation has continued various tests, but since the alterations typically result in the human receiving significant destructive capabilities, the tests have resulted in numerous containment breaches. Throughout all of this, the Foundation really isn't sure what is happening with 3396 and its effect on organisms, mostly because they can't physically interact with the entity or the new organs inside of organisms. They have done thaumaturgic scans though, meaning magical in nature, and rather than receiving the normal readings that they would expect from such scans, they only receive back a single word, thrive. The significance of this is unknown, and they have no means of communicating with the entity itself. As for the affected entities, all of the research members that first discovered 3396 became affected, and they all worked to completely uncover 3396 in a matter of days. They then moved on to major population centers, and it seems they worked to spread the infection. 
entities not under containment have utilized their new abilities to perform a wide variety of tasks, from both violent and non-violent crime to mass eradication of certain diseases and public welfare initiatives. Like I said, the change doesn't affect an individual's personality, so humans with superpowers will do different things with those powers. The Foundation has been hard at work trying to recontain all of these entities and maintain normalcy, but it's not going too well. Multiple groups of interest, including the GOC, the Serpent's Hand, and others, have gotten a hold of various altered humans and are utilizing them for their own goals. The Foundation doesn't even have control over 3396, which is being disputed between a number of groups of interest. So far, only 6% of the population is affected, and the Foundation believes that they can still recontain things, but if that number hits 15%, they will initiate Contingency Alabaster to change their prime directive and ensure the safety of what humanity remains. That brings us to the next section, a tale titled The Shape of a Gun, which starts right after the female D-Class had broken containment using numerous advanced weaponry. The D-Class's real name is Monica Pinkston, and the tale opens with her looking down over the wreckage of the Foundation's site, hefting a 150-pound rotary-fire grenade cannon over her shoulder. She sees fire and smoke in the ruins, alarms blaring in the distance, and she knows that she could continue raining down ordnance onto it until it was nothing but ash, taking vengeance on everyone inside, but only a small part of her wanted to do so. She lets go of her cannon, which instead of falling to the ground, it disappears entirely, and she turns and walks away. Half an hour later, she wishes that she had stolen a Foundation car or helicopter first, and she sits down on a rock to stop. She has no survival skills, no equipment, no food, no transportation, and no idea where she was. She also is not alone, though, as something is inside of her, the influence of SCP-3396, and she can feel it. One hour prior, she had been a D-Class, numbered 77777, which had made her somewhat noteworthy in the D-Class community she was a part of. They had named her Lucky Sevens, and despite Monica's natural inclination throughout life to stay out of the spotlight and avoid standing out, other D-Class gravitated towards her due to her number. Monica knew that she was just a normal girl from a bad neighborhood with a long list of petty crimes due to her daddy issues, mommy issues, money issues, anger issues, and plenty more. She was just another stupid, regrettable sob story among millions, but because of her D-Class number, the other D-Class thought she was special. They believed you could talk to her and she'd give good advice. She was a quick study and knew how to survive. She had made it through test after test without dying, and she could show you how, just because she was Lucky Sevens. She didn't bother trying to refute anything, and just did her best, until she was selected for the 3396 test, and everything changed. Over the course of a few seconds, her body and mind collapsed, and she was no longer herself, instead becoming a cup of her own soul, being drunk by something very thirsty, before being pissed back out. She wasn't explicitly told by any entity that she had gained incredible power and could use it to escape, 
but she felt things without words, like smoke and iron filings in her blood. Whatever had been responsible for this had taken something from her, and she wasn't sure what, but had left behind an entire arsenal of weaponry. It had taken all of her frustration and hatred and misery and doubt and determination and smelted it into a shape that represented what she was to the world, the shape of a gun. She had access to millions of weapons now, from pistols to cruise missiles to things that haven't even been imagined yet. She describes the feeling of being shot as a hammer driving down on the blasting cap of her soul, her body becoming a divine bomb. She didn't really understand any of this. She had just acted, alone because she had become too dangerous to be near. She stops to pull a smuggled cigarette out of her uniform, instinctively manifesting a blowtorch to light it. As she sits there smoking, a vehicle in the distance draws closer, and she prepares herself for another explosive confrontation. She didn't think they could kill her, but even if they could, it didn't matter to her. A black dune buggy comes into view, with only one occupant, a tall, tan, military man in black body armor. She decides not to shoot first, and he steps out with his hands up, telling her that he just wants to talk. Monica manifests an enormous laser weapon larger than her own body, aiming it directly at him. She says that she wants to vaporize him with this laser, but she'll let him go first. He says that he's not here to try and bring her back, and understands why she'd want to kill him, but he asks her if she believes in second chances. She swears at him, but he continues, saying that he's read her file and thinks that she does believe in second chances. Monica steps forward, placing the aperture of the laser inches from the man's forehead, but he still continues. He says that he's only alive right now because he's got the sense to stay on the winning side, The Foundation is losing at this point due to the rapid spread of these altered humans, and he offers his assistance to Monica because he has a vehicle, money, contacts, and information. Fast forward quite a ways, and Monica is now known as the Queen of Spades and the Baroness of Old Vegas, and life has changed. She's currently battling an anomalous humanoid surrounded by floating blobs of black plasma that dissolve anything they touch. It seems that this particular individual has attacked Old Vegas numerous times, and despite Monica's best efforts, she has yet to kill him. She utilizes artillery bombardments and dozens of high-explosive missiles, but even if a projectile gets close to hitting the man, he protects himself with his black sludge. She's talking through an earpiece to the former Foundation agent, Jake, and they mention another anomalous humanoid named Dozer, who apparently has the ability to move Earth. Monica desperately wants to stop this man once and for all, as he's been the cause of multiple evacuated districts and plenty of scared families residing in Old Vegas. She decides to bring out her biggest weapon, nicknamed the Showstopper. A colossal tower of churning metal appears in the sky above the man, blocking out the sun and outputting tremendous amounts of heat. The bottom end of this device glows and drips molten metal, and Monica activates it, letting out a deafening hum across the city. 
A massive column of light descends from the device straight down into the earth, vaporizing everything in its path and letting out a heat wave that sears Monica's flesh to her delight. After it finishes, the light and the device disappear, leaving nothing but a smoking molten shaft in the ground where the man had been before Monica passes out. She slowly wakes up sometime later, her body feeling like it had been punched by a giant fist, and Jake is waiting next to her. Monica asks what happened, and Jake says that she pulled the showstopper on Void Boy, but he's not sure if he managed to teleport away before getting hit. The man named Dozer is mad at her, though, for melting through a buried sewer main, but she's not bothered. As she continues to wake up, she notices that she's in a private room in a treatment center, where there's electricity for the medical equipment and actual doctors that Monica had managed to hire, despite the danger of working here. She says to Jake that it's really strange that a year ago, Jake was a site security captain for the SCP Foundation, and she was one of his prisoners. And now, she's some sort of wizard mutant, the mayor of Las Vegas, and he runs around keeping her alive while they fight supervillains. Jake replies that she fights the supervillains while he stays very far away and gives occasional advice. He had been talking with another former Foundation personnel, but the guy didn't have any new info that they didn't already have. And when Jake offered him a place here in Old Vegas, he said that he'd rather take his chances in the desert. It seems that some people don't want to live in a ruined city populated mostly by mutants and mutant sympathizers. As they head off to get food, it's clear that Jake is silently in love with Monica, and she is now happy to be alive. Monica hadn't exactly chosen to be the mayor of Old Vegas and its community, as it isn't in her personality, but instead it was foisted upon her due to her power and her willingness to protect her fellow mutants. She doesn't relish in the authority though, and takes her meals in the cafeteria with everyone else, trying to sit with different people every time. There are various groups and cliques inside of the community, as is human nature with mutants and non-mutants tending to stay separate. As Monica heads into the cafeteria, she spots the burly, bearded construction worker named Dozer, who's capable of moving Earth, and who runs the maintenance squadron of Old Vegas. She also sees the Spookies, a group of mutants with abilities that allow them to be supernaturally quick or stealthy, who work as Monica's spies and scouts. One fades in and out of sight as she hasn't learned to control her invisibility yet. Another keeps himself wreathed in dense shadows to cope with his social anxiety. And a third has a great number of eyes across her face, which allow her to see through walls for miles. She then looks at the fighters, the most destructive mutants in the community aside from Monica herself, who tended to strike a little bit of fear in the rest of the community. One of them... Ogre is over nine feet tall with red skin and large tusks, but is surprisingly kind-hearted despite his appearance. Another is completely covered in highly poisonous thorns and is capable of regenerating from being blown to pieces, but she keeps herself wrapped in protective pads to prevent accidentally poisoning anyone. A third individual has control over electricity, 
and is currently making silverware dance in the air with electromagnetism to the amusement of the others. He had once supplied power to the entire district when a generator bank had gone down. It's clear that, despite the fearsome appearances and capabilities of the anomalous humans here, they are all good people at heart. Finally, Monica spots Norman in the corner, a loner with a rather striking appearance even by mutant standards. Norman is the other D-Class mentioned in the 3396 file, and appears as a disgusting amalgamation of flesh and exposed organs levitating in the air, surrounded by dozens of floating disembodied hands with eyes in the palms. Parts of him continually warp in and out of visible space, and multiple copies of himself as he had looked before the mutations occasionally appear near him before disappearing. Just looking at Norman for too long tended to give people headaches, and he is avoided by practically everyone except for Monica, who eats with him whenever he makes a rare appearance in the cafeteria. She's not really sure where he goes when he's not in the cafeteria, and she remembers him from her time at the Foundation as a quiet, contemplative person. As she approaches Norman, some of the floating hands turn to face her, and they disappear before she walks through them to sit down. She asks Norman how he's doing, and he responds by speaking with numerous voices at the same time, as well as directly injecting images or sensations into someone's mind if words aren't enough. Monica describes it as a profoundly surreal and sometimes upsetting experience, but she had gotten used to it. Norman says that he's alright, as the wind is rich and full of secrets today, and he had seen Monica fight the Void Thrower. Monica says that she's not sure if he'll come back this time, because she went the extra mile, but Norman replies that she didn't kill him, because he had tried to hold the Void Thrower in place using his powers, but he escaped. Monica is rather surprised, not by the fact that he escaped, but by Norman actually helping out. She asks him if he knows anything about this individual, like where he came from or why he keeps trying to murder everyone here, but Norman says that the Void Thrower has a strange mind with few cohesive thoughts. The only thing he can find in his mind is thoughts of murder and destruction, and Norman isn't sure if he's alone within himself. Asked to clarify, Norman says that he believes that the Void Thrower's mutation opened up some kind of gate and something came through. Something mean. He'd have to dig deeper to find out, and that would probably be bad for his health. Monica asks if he can be killed, and Norman thinks that he could be, but you'd need something to mess with the space around him and prevent him from teleporting away. Norman can do that, but not to the degree necessary, as he would need help from someone else that can do the same, and unfortunately, he doesn't know of anyone that can do the same thing as him. Monica says that the more she hangs out with Norman, the more she likes him, because he's a nice guy. She hears the sound of laughter accompanied by images of sunshine and colorful flowers in her head, and Norman says that he's an ugly bastard, but he likes to think that he makes up for it with his glowing and handsome personality. Monica realizes at this point and states aloud that Norman can simply read through her mind at will. 
Norman says that it's not something he does on purpose, comparing it to walking through a museum and being told that if you think about looking at the paintings, you'll be punished. Monica replies that it's still creepy, leading her to receive images of rain clouds in her head and the sound of distant crying, with Norman apologizing and saying that he can't help what he is, but assures her that her secrets are safe with him. He says that he was given great gifts, and he would never go back to what he was before, but sometimes he thinks he would give almost anything to. Monica understands what he means, and tells him that he should come around more often, as they've all changed in some way and can empathize with him at least a little. He doesn't have to be alone, as there's a family here if he gives them a chance. The rain clouds part in her head, and Norman says that that makes him feel better and he's glad that she, of all people, was given the abilities that she has. Norman suddenly freezes, and before Monica can ask what's wrong, images of terror, agony, and chaos crash through her head, and Norman's voice explodes through the minds of everyone in the building simultaneously. He announces that hundreds of soldiers are currently entering Old Vegas armed with guns, armor, and war machines. Like I said before, the SCP Foundation is nothing if not perseverant. Norman says that the commander intends to capture the citizens of Old Vegas and kill all who resist. Norman tells Monica that he'll provide a telepathic communications network for the defenders of Old Vegas, as well as revealing the mind of the enemy. But first, he will banish their helicopters from his sky, and tells the Queen of Old Vegas to be strong and lead them to victory. Monica leaps up and commands all the fighters to their battle stations, ordering team captains to use Norman's telepathic network to coordinate. The maintenance squadron is told to break up the road in front of the Foundation's army to stop their tanks, and the Spookies are ordered to spy on the army and provide status reports every ten minutes. She says that it's time to show these Nazis why you can't mess with Old Vegas, and the community roars loud enough to rattle the concrete and quake the hearts of the Foundation. Shortly after, Monica stands on the street in front of a thick line of her artillery cannons pointed at the Foundation's small army. The Foundation outnumbered the defenders of Old Vegas three to one, but they didn't exactly have superpowers. The commander steps forward and says that it's with a heavy heart that they come here today, but they cannot allow the inhuman infestation to continue to spread. For the benefit of all humanity, they ask that all mutants here lay down their arms and surrender to be contained, for the safety of the world. Monica stares him down, her people behind her, as Dozer cracks his huge fist together and the maintenance squadron shouts in defiance. Ogre roars and smashes his enormous steel club in the ground, the rest of the fighters crying out with him. Norman hovers above all of them, gazing downward with hundreds of eyes, providing the queen with the commander's innermost plans and allowing the defenders to think with one mind. Just behind Monica is Jake, pointing his assault rifle directly at the commander's head. Monica cries out as Norman transmits her words directly into the minds of the Foundation's soldiers, telling them that they will never submit to their tyranny, as they are still people, and they will die for the right to remain free. She welcomes their hate and conquest, because they are the free state of Vegas, and they will not be moved. 
The free people of the community thunder out their pride, their yearning to live, their right to thrive, and Monica lets herself be wielded by the hearts of her people, forging her soul into a shape that would defend their homes and lives. The shape of a gun. We won't see the conclusion to this battle, but this isn't the end of Monica's story, or that of Apotheosis. From the Foundation's perspective, they have a real problem in their hands, a total shift in the status quo of the world where they have lost the power to contain things. While it's all well and good that some nice superhumans are running around just trying to make their own communities, this infection is spreading, and there is something mysterious behind all of it. There's still plenty of story left to go though, and things are going to get even more interesting from here, so stay tuned. Apotheosis, Part 2 A radical turn of events has changed the world, with millions of anomalous humans roaming the Earth, and the SCP Foundation struggling to save those that haven't changed. A paradigm shift of normalcy is occurring, and even though the Foundation is completely outgunned, they remain steadfast in their goals. We pick up from part one with the Foundation clearly losing the war, and the comic book style action really ramps up in the tale A Farewell to Arms, followed by some more world building and discussions from the anomalous side in A New Age of Magic. We open up with a remote conversation between the members of the O5 Council, the 13 leaders of the SCP Foundation. At least one of them is completely losing hope in the wake of such drastic circumstances, as some of the affected humans are going on the offensive and wiping out Foundation sites. During the call, they are notified that they just lost two more mobile task forces, one of which was wiped out somehow by an anomalous living mountain range, and the other defected from the Foundation rather than fighting the mutants. 05-2 says that they need to divert all of their resources to focus on containing or neutralizing humans affected by SCP-3396. 05-3 replies that it doesn't really feel like the SCP Foundation to be putting most of humanity into camps and labs, but 2 retorts that it's still just containment of anomalies, and nothing has changed except for the scale and the budget. There won't be a humanity left if they don't manage to do this properly. The council puts it to a vote, of which a handful vote in favor, three of them vote against, and the rest abstain, putting the Foundation firmly at war against the mutants. 05-2 disconnects from the call afterwards, situated in one of 13 bunkers located in highly secretive places around, inside, or near the planet. These bunkers are filled with the most advanced technology on the planet, and 05-2 specifically is a massive structure surrounding a single central room located a kilometer beneath the desert. This bunker would normally be impervious to any earthquake, hurricane, or even asteroid that tried to harm it, but currently it had a huge hole in it, thanks to some enterprising mutants. The bunker surrounding 05-2's room is a labyrinth that utilizes anomalous machinery to bend space, meaning that if someone doesn't know the exact correct path to the center, you could walk for 100 kilometers inside of the bunker and never get close. 
Miles of these corridors were currently destroyed, with turrets sitting as smoking wrecks, and a number of humanoid bodies lay torn apart. One indistinct melted red corpse has its fist embedded in the broken remains of a Scranton reality disruptor, the air around it sputtering and rippling. A broken laser grid defense system quietly whirs with sparks dripping off of it, and a motionless body made of sparkling crystal lay in pieces in front of it, covered in scorch marks. Further into the bunker, whole walls are torn apart and corroded, one chewed to pieces by a swarm of fiery moths, and another had been turned to rock candy before being shattered. A turret was currently being chewed on by a T-Rex made of plasma, Someone's body had been crumpled by reality compressing to two dimensions before being rolled up into non-existence. A missile the size of a person was hovering in the air, encased in bone. And a defense drone had been melted into a puddle of cheese. The Scranton reality anchors placed throughout the facility had simply sat and watched, defenseless against such an impressive tide of anomalous forces. In the central room, O5-2 and two Foundation agents were preparing for the inevitable breach of mutants. They were each inside of a highly advanced suit of armor that made them effectively anomalous themselves, with an AI to assist with combat maneuvers. Their only problem was that there were really only two of them to fight. The suits were highly experimental, and they were still powering up. As the attacking mutants explosively breach the wall of the central chamber, one of the agents, Palinez, puts up a force field to block a massive blast of fire from a mutant's hand. A mutant with two arms that are holding two more arms made of brass is leading the charge of about 25 total mutants. The agents don't back down, however, and Agent Figueroa knocks the first wave back with a pulse of energy before shooting a gray-skinned, two-headed man in the chest with a laser. Another mutant extends their veins and arteries out of their body, now ending in sharp points, and begins trying to pry into Figueroa's suit, while another blasts her with magma. The suit releases a burst of electricity to deal with the vein mutant, but they held on while screaming in pain. Yet another mutant, one with only mouths on its face and neck, opens them and screams with devastating sonic force, but Figueroa manages to swing the vein mutant into the path of the waves, disintegrating him. One down, twenty-four to go. Meanwhile, Agent Palinez had just barely managed to escape from another plasma dinosaur, eliminating it with a magnetic field generator, but an older mutant had affixed both of Palinez's feet to the floor with an ultra-strong adhesive. The same mutant was now working to dissolve the suit of armor using acid, while two other mutants restrained him. Palinez diverted some extra power to his right leg to dislodge it, taking some floor with it, and then proceeded to cut the older mutant in half with an energy blade, but the acid was doing its work. A mutant in the back named Rita had been waiting for her opportunity, and now it was here. She extended a single hair from her arm, which rapidly grew in length, and stretched across the room towards Palinez, who desperately tried to blast it away. The single hair wormed its way into a millimeter-wide breach in the suit created by the acid, and weaved its way through the layers and cracks, past the undersuit, 
and onto the agent's skin, where it touched a hair on his arm. In Rita's mind, she spoke a single word, the one that was now etched onto the DNA of her every cell. Thrive. Agent Palanez felt a pinprick on his arm, followed by a shudder through his body, making every hair stand on end. Then, the hairs began to grow quickly, some doubling back into his skin, creating more and more hair, filling the suit. The pressure began to crush him, and the hair suffocated him. To quote the tale, a bad hair day indeed. As Agent Palanez asphyxiated and his heart stops, the suit executes a final command, self-destruct. Pieces of the outer shell shoot out at twice the speed of light as the suit explodes, turning Rita and the two mutants that had been holding Palanez into nothing but atoms and light. It's not looking great for the Foundation's team here, as that still leaves plenty of mutants left to fight one agent and an overseer. The mutant that had been holding two arms steps up, and we learn that this is actually a former SCP, numbered 3589. His real name is Armando Rivera, and his anomalous trait was being able to manifest new arms when his were removed. These arms grew rapidly, he felt no pain during the process, and although it was possible, albeit much more difficult than normal, for an exterior force to remove his arms, he himself could easily pull off his own arms. The new arms he grows can be of wildly random substances and compositions, including animal arms, liquids, gases, or amorphous materials. Additionally, Armando retained some degree of control over these arms after being detached, depending on how many he attempts to control at once. The mutant infection, rather than giving Armando a completely new ability, magnified his existing anomalous trait to new heights. He now has far greater control over his detached arms, and can actively choose what substances his new arms are composed of, being a former Foundation prisoner, it's pretty clear that Armando has a personal vendetta here. Armando creates an arm composed of a high explosive, and using several more arms in a chain, wraps it around Agent Figaro's neck before detonating it. The explosion throws the remaining mutants backwards and fills the room with smoke, but another mutant manages to convert the smoke into a large number of metal needles, which he throws at the agent. The agent, however, deflects the needles into a different mutant, and activates an artificial gravity generator to bring the mutants to their knees. Activating this took a big chunk of the suit's power, but Figueroa hopes to pick them off while they're pressed down. She approaches a gold-skinned woman, but the woman manifests a shield around herself and the scaly man next to her. Rather than trying to break the shield, Figueroa amps up the gravity generator for a split second to crush the two of them, but this causes the generator to shut down. Figueroa's in a tough spot, as Armando's explosion had managed to crack her armor, her partner was dead, and her suit was running out of power. By this point, only three mutants remained. As Armando and another mutant rush Figueroa, the agent lets loose a sonic pulse, blocked by Armando growing the wing of an extinct, anomalous bat. The other mutant leaps into the air, and Armando uses several arms to swing him downwards towards the agent, 
Figueroa puts up a shield to block the attack, but the mutant suddenly increases his mass 100-fold, smashing through and knocking Figueroa to the ground. Armando pins her there with 17 metallic arms, while the other mutant uses his ultra-dense fists to continually smash her. The armor was really in trouble now, and Figueroa activates a magnetic repulsor field to send the metallic arms flying. She then utilizes a psychic amplifier to liquefy the other mutant's brain. She wasn't out of trouble though, as Armando had manifested the front leg of a Brachiosaurus and was slamming it down towards her face. She manages to block this though, and fires two balls of energy at Armando. Using several long tentacles, Armando manages to tear off some of Figueroa's armor as she sends him flying with a shockwave. Growing desperate, Armando manifests more mass than he's ever attempted before, growing an arm with a nanometer-thick neutron star skin, which is rather ridiculous to say the least. The sheer force of gravity from this arm pulls Figueroa straight towards him, and he proceeds to slam the arm into her midsection, the blow sending cracks spiraling through the suit of armor and breaking the faceplate. Despite this, Figueroa was confident that she would be victorious, as she reaches to her side and throws a null grenade into the air. The gravity of the arm pulls the grenade in, but Armando tosses the arm away as hard as he can. The grenade explodes, leaving an empty void of reality where the arm was. Using her last bit of suit power, Figueroa diverts energy to her palms, releasing a blast of continuous blue plasma towards Armando. Armando began manifesting arms as quickly as he could to block the attack, but things were looking dire. Suddenly though, Figueroa stopped, the plasma disappearing as she lets out a single cry of pain. Her right arm and face swiftly turn to translucent crystal and Armando turns to see the other mutant still living, who was on the floor, straining to keep her four eyes open. This mutant had the ability to turn anything she focused on into salt, and although the suit was rapidly reversing the transmutation, it was too late for Figueroa, whose heart crystallized. The other mutants succumbed to her injuries at this point, leaving only Armando and O5-2 in the room. Despite the O5 being equipped with the same suit as the other two, he was not prepared for combat, and Armando soon stood victorious over the shattered remains of his suit. As O5-2 coughs up blood, he asks Armando if it was worth all the lives he had to throw away to get here. Armando finds that pretty ironic coming from an overseer of the Foundation, and says that every one of them volunteered for this battle. They knew what they were doing, and had decided that the reward of a brand new world with no cells was worth it. Armando says that he doesn't think there's a place in this new world for him though, and proceeds to strangle O5-2. Another crack in the foundations of the old world, hewn by the dead citizens of the new. Let's take a break from the action for now and look at the overall situation from the affected human's perspective. The following section is written as a Serpent's Hand document, and it seems members of a large number of factions are sharing communications through the Serpent's Hand, 
including Monica's faction in Old Vegas, the Church of the Broken God, and members of the Sarkic cults. According to the Serpent's Hand, the activation of SCP-3396 was a merging of mankind and the Fae, as it had been at some point in the past before separating. The veil over the anomalous was broken, and the SCP Foundation, the GOC, and even the UIU have crumbled because of it. Jake from Old Vegas chimes in to say that he knows the Foundation, and it's foolish to think they're done with them yet. At this point, at least one in three humans have been affected by SCP-3396, and very little can compare with their combined might, with more humans being converted every day. None of the Serpent's Hand members are aware of the source of the changes though, that being SCP-3396, since the infection has spread way beyond that location. Even if they were aware of it, it wouldn't exactly explain things, since whatever is behind 3396 seems to be impossible to communicate with. We're given an illustration taken from the seventh book of apocryphal visions that is believed to depict current or future events regarding this awakening, but they're not sure what it means. We'll find out later. Moving on to discussing what they do know, they know that every human affected by the change shares three traits. One being the growth of new luminescent organs throughout the body, possessing magical barriers that no one has been able to bypass thus far. These organs provide the magical energy needed to power the individual's abilities, and the author suggests that a single affected individual can produce more energy than the strongest living magic users. The second trait these humans share is the mutations, which is a concept that has existed previously in the world of magic, but usually only when rituals went wrong, and never in a positive way. They have attempted to try and figure out exactly how the mutations, the organs, and the fluid from 3396 works, but so far they've been completely unsuccessful. It seems to defy any sort of previous thinking they had on the matter, as the entire process is governed by a single word, thrive. Somehow this command generates its own magical domain and source of magic in a way that defies fundamental magiphysics. Since you're likely not a wizard, it's okay if you don't understand all that, because the serpent's hand doesn't either. The third commonality between the affected humans is that they all are linked together in a magical network, the epicenter of which seems to be in the western United States, in an area controlled by the Foundation. This would, of course, be 3396, but again, they're not sure yet if that's where the source of the power is, or just a geographic focus. There's just a lot that they don't know or understand about the whole thing, although they have a tremendous amount of respect for it, and obviously the Serpent's Hand couldn't be happier with the shift in normalcy. An excerpt from the seventh book of Apocryphal Visions states, You will wake within the chrysalis and see the self that is written beyond the lids of the eye. The serpent shall shed its scales and spread its roots. When blue stars shine in the light of father, the meaning of life will be known. The spawn of daughter will be made to thrive. 
again, we'll get some explanation for that later. Since the breakout of the infection, there have been three primary theories about the nature of the event. Most Sarkites believe that this event was brought on by the victory of Grand Karsist Ion over Yaldabaoth. Neo-Sarkics have long believed that Grand Karsist Ion, the traditional leader of the Sarkic cults, was killed some time ago, while the Church of the Broken God believed that he was instead imprisoned. Proto-Sarkics believe that he instead ascended beyond this plane of existence to do battle with the creation deity, Yaldabaoth, on humanity's behalf. They now believe that he was victorious and has consumed the divine flesh, blessing the chosen people of Earth so that they can create a utopia. It would seem that there has been violent reactions between the 3396 infection and Neo-Sarkic Karsis, who served Yaldabaoth, which supports this theory. Thanks to the popularity of this theory, Sarkicism belief is at an all-time high across the globe. Defectors of the Foundation and the GOC instead believe that this event was caused by an anomaly responsible for the original creation of life. The presence of anomalies throughout history suggests that humans by their nature are not natural entities, and the sudden awakening of magical powers seems to be an evolution of this trend. In other words, they believe that humans were created by a deity to be singularly unique, and this breakout of magical abilities is just another step on humanity's evolutionary ladder. They are divided though on whether or not the deity responsible is the Abrahamic god or some other creator deity. The third theory, held by the Church of the Broken God and some older members of the Serpent's Hand, is that even though the abilities gained by the mutations are incredible and positive, they stem from a non-benevolent force. This shift in normalcy has undoubtedly led to a massive spike in global instability, and it's possible that whatever force is responsible for this may be interested in conquering or enslaving humanity in this time of disharmony. Who or what this entity is, though, is impossible to say, with the broken church suggesting that it's Yaldabaoth, but Sarkites insist that Yaldabaoth would choose the color red for mutations, not blue. Robert Bumaro, the head of the Church of the Broken God, writes that he doesn't believe it to be Yaldabaoth nor Grand Karsist Ion. All he knows is that it isn't the work of Mekane, the Broken God, and the spread of magic across the world terrifies him. Another individual expresses complete disdain for whoever or whatever mutated them, because they are an ugly mess now and they can't eat or sleep anymore. A member of the Serpent's Hand responds, telling them that even though it's hard, they'll come to see that their true self is a beautiful thing, and this is merely a trial before paradise. A former Foundation site director who was an expert on ancient thaumaturgy chimes in, saying that she studied the Garden of the Second Sun and reverse-engineered rituals of the ancient devas. She says that magic has infinite manifestations, sources, and rules, none of which universally apply, except for one, 
everything has a cost. Humanity is currently ascending thanks to magic, perhaps all the way to godhood. She wonders what price will be asked of us for this, and what will happen when they can't afford to pay it. With that, we'll leave off part two of the Apotheosis story. The scales have definitely tipped towards the new humanity, and life on Earth has fundamentally changed. The final part of the story will reveal the insights we've been looking for, and find out exactly in which direction humanity is heading. We'll also catch back up with Monica, who continues to evolve. Will the Foundation ultimately prevail and restore Earth to normal, or will humanity become an unrecognizable form, alien to its prior mundane existence? There's only one way to find out. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Apotheosis, Part 3 The SCP Foundation has drawn a line in the sand and initiated a war against the entities formerly known as humans. In spite of everything that has changed, they have decided to maintain their commitment to normal, baseline humanity and to contain anything and anyone that could be considered anomalous. In the third and final part of the Apotheosis story, this war between the SCP Foundation and the anomalous humans affected by SCP-3396 will finally come to a climax. In the article SCP-3731, we're given a complete timeline of the war, as well as some fun glimpses at the type of weapons and tools the Foundation used to combat millions of super-powered humans. In the final tale, Thrive, we'll get to see the aftermath of the war, and although it won't provide every answer we might want, it will provide a conclusion. SCP-3731 is the designation for the sapient population of Earth, the entities formerly known as humans. I'll continue to refer to them as mutants throughout the story for simplicity's sake, but really these entities are far more common and normal than humans. The Foundation, despite their best efforts, failed to contain the spread of the 3396 infection, and by this point, every living human outside of a zone in the western United States has been converted. This orange zone, completely controlled by what's left of the Foundation, is their last bastion of normalcy amid a ruined world. This orange zone was formed as part of the Foundation's Alabaster Protocol, which involves shifting the Foundation's entire directive to handling this problem, obviously. All research personnel are now assigned to developing technological, paratechnological, and thomic countermeasures to the mutants, and a number of portable SCPs have been relocated to the Orange Zone, while most immovable objects have been either decommissioned, meaning destroyed, or otherwise rendered inaccessible. Foundation sites containing immovable Keter-class threats have been thomically warded and locked down, 
supported by automated defense systems to keep intruders away until the Foundation regains control of the situation. Additionally, any assets the Foundation has access to but avoided using because they would draw too much attention in normal circumstances, such as paratechnical weapons and vehicles, infantry augmentation equipment, and things like large, unpiloted combat drones are now being used. Finally, any rulings the Ethics Committee might make about treatment of the mutants is to be ignored, so the gloves are off. The Foundation has observed that, collectively, the mutant population displays higher rates of physical aggression, anti-establishmentarian tendencies, and other antisocial behavior compared to normal human beings. This, of course, isn't due to the mutations affecting people's brains directly, but rather what happens when you give the population of the world sudden superpowers and grotesque mutations. This has led to some communities forming amongst mutants, such as we saw with Monica in Old Vegas, but because of infighting and outside attacks, they have remained small. Additionally, some dangerous SCPs that have now broken containment, some of which have also been mutated, have caused a significant number of casualties amongst mutants. The Foundation's best guess is that the total number of living mutants currently is no more than 5% of the prior baseline human population, which still leaves hundreds of millions of superhumans. What's worse, though, is that it seems that these mutations have continually increased over time, giving mutants increasingly greater capabilities and forms. Apparently, Earth was not meant to handle this level of anomalous activity, and it is becoming exponentially more unstable, with earthquakes, fire spouts, new mountains and sinkholes popping up, dead zones incompatible with life appearing, and various types of animals falling from the sky occurring. Based on their current info, if nothing changes, the Earth will be rendered uninhabitable by 2024. Obviously, the Foundation is going to try and change things. That leads to our first section of the timeline of events that led up to this point. Things kicked off in October of 2018 when Foundation researchers stumbled upon SCP-3396 and became mutated. Two weeks later, the GOC and UIU became involved, and the three groups created a demilitarized neutral zone around 3396. Anomalous events began to be reported across the United States as the infection spreads, requiring the amnestization of over 70,000 civilians. It only took five weeks after this point for the infection to be present on every inhabited continent, with an estimated 0.8% of the global population affected. A mutant at an outdoor concert in London allows the crowd to fly by imitating a flapping motion with their arms forcing the Foundation to send in two MTFs to contain the situation. They found that all 314 people they contained had been infected during the event, and they had to amnesticize a total of around 9,000 civilians. Things were getting out of hand, but so far the Foundation was still handling it. Three weeks later, by the end of December, around 1.4% of the population was converted, and Foundation personnel trained in thaumaturgy are assigned to ward Foundation sites from infection. Three mutants in Paris use their abilities to rob an armored truck, and easily dispatch the Foundation agents sent in to respond, forcing an MTF to come in and neutralize them. 
18 Foundation members and 29 civilians also died in this incident. By the start of February, the veil had been broken, as 2.5% of the global population were now mutants, and the Foundation simply couldn't amnesticize enough people or even worry about keeping the veil intact at this point. Rioting breaks out across the globe, and the GOC authorizes lethal force against any and all mutants. The Foundation establishes a new headquarters in the evacuated city of Phoenix, Arizona, the center of the Orange Zone. Through this process, they move nearly 1.5 million civilians and manage to contain around 30,000 mutants, creating a new containment area to hold them. Exponential growth really kicks in here, and within two months, over 11% of the global population is infected, and the majority of governments cease to function. The O5 Council passes a mandate allowing anomalous methods in the containment of the mutants, including reverse engineering of paratechnology, use of necrothaumaturgy, or necromancy as it were, and collusion with extra-dimensional entities. Yes, the Foundation are desperate enough at this point to make a deal with some sort of cosmic creature, whether that would be something like the Scarlet King or something else. This would explain why they could keep up with the mutants. Not that it does a whole lot of good, because another two months go by and nearly 40% of the world is infected, the GOC has fallen apart completely, and one of the O5s becomes a mutant as well. By August 1st, the number's up to 56%, and a notable event occurs in the city of Jaipur in India, when an infant becomes infected and begins consuming nearby people and objects, incorporating them into its body and continuing to grow. The Foundation completely fails here, and it requires the assistance of around 100 other mutants to terminate the massive baby, leading to the deaths of 206 Foundation members and an estimated 2.4 million civilians. Let's take a small break from the timeline of events to look at some of the weapons the Foundation brought out to wage war against an army of mutants, potentially with assistance by extra-dimensional entities. The controlled innervation gauntlets are an attachment for the Foundation's infantry combat exoskeletons that deliver weaponized thaumic invocations in close quarters combat. These invocations cause the target's skeleton to combust by default, which is impressive, and the gauntlets can be loaded with more specialized invocations if needed. The Spectral Emulsion Ordinance is a piece of equipment for infantry that works like a flamethrower, but expels weaponized ghosts and may cause residual haunting, which is not a sentence I'd ever thought I'd say. The Thaumic Resonance Oscillator is a bit more heavy-duty, and is attached to vehicles for large-scale engagements. It works by using tuned etheric waves to stimulate blue matter growths inside of mutants, causing uncontrolled bursts of anomalous activity. This activity is obviously pretty unpredictable, so it's recommended to be used from a safe distance only, but can merely incapacitate instead of kill at lower frequencies. Moving up, we have the Thano Penetrating Aperture Mortar a rather unique form of long-range artillery that creates large holes on surfaces and causes groups of elongated, multi-jointed human limbs to emerge from said holes. These arms will detect any sapient organism nearby and pull them down inside of the hole, after which the holes will demanifest, 
allowing long-range dispatching of mutants while minimizing damage to cities. Autonomous neutralization drones are AI-equipped robotic aircraft resembling WASPs that travel in swarms to track and neutralize mutants. They are programmed to tunnel into the bodies of mutants and disrupt internal matter formations, with around 2% of mutants surviving this process, who can then be taken in as Foundation personnel after recovery. Finally, we have the Geometric Destabilization Artillery, aircraft-mounted missiles that cause spatial distortions in an area that are incompatible with life, such as surfaces folding into themselves or objects occupying the same space at the same time. These weapons are recommended only for use against mutants that have transformed into large, non-human forms, as it renders the area of effect permanently uninhabitable due to redistributing the circulatory system of anyone that enters. So, with all this incredible weaponry, surely the Foundation stands a much better chance against the mutant hordes. Unfortunately, while they may have helped to slow the spread, they certainly didn't stop it. By the end of August of 2019, 10 months after this all started, 77% of the world's population has been converted, and the Foundation has moved all of their personnel and remaining resources to the Orange Zone. The R&D team begins working on a new procedure to neutralize the mutations in an individual and revert them back to human. The process is dubbed Lilac, and involves a combination of magic, anomalous medical interventions, and radical surgery. A month later, the number is up to 89%, and the Foundation sets out to reclaim the city of Tucson, Arizona from mutant control, utilizing their new weaponry. The Foundation succeeds, losing only 39 personnel in the process, killing off 842 mutants and capturing over 12,000 of them. The O5s approved the usage of Procedure 01 Lilac on the contained mutants, which proves to have a survival rate of 0.01%, so there's some room for improvement. October 2019, one year after the start, the entirety of the human population outside of the Foundation's orange zone has been converted. O5-1 is lost during the destruction of a Foundation site as the entire site and surrounding landscape is launched into space by a number of mutants. Two weeks later, the Foundation continues to expand their orange zone, reclaiming the city of El Paso in Texas, losing 124 Foundation personnel, killing off 599 mutants, and capturing nearly 17,000. The Lilac process has moved on to its fifth iteration, now with a 6.1% survival rate. A week later, they recapture Albuquerque, containing another 13,000 mutants. On February 6th, the battle at 05-2's safe house occurs that we looked at last time, with three Foundation casualties and 43 mutant casualties. March 8th, another 05 becomes infected, and proceeds to send a mass text and email to all Foundation personnel simultaneously, simply reading, Thrive, before disappearing. Reconnaissance into the city of Santa Fe reveals that the entire city has become a dense forest of humanoid trees and anomalous fauna. The Foundation deems the city irreclaimable, and proceeds to bomb it instead. 
As March continues, the Foundation is beginning to run real short of supplies to keep containing all of these mutants, and one provisional containment area is forced to ration electricity and limit the usage of air conditioning. After two days, 37 mutants die of heatstroke, and the remaining mutants riot, destroying the containment area and releasing around 14,000 mutants back into the wild. Towards the end of April, the reclamation of Las Vegas commences, which we read about back at the start of all this. The Foundation ends up losing that battle, pretty badly as it turns out, with over 5,000 casualties, capturing zero mutants, and only managing to kill an estimated 950 of them. June 4th, another containment area is lost by a mutant attack, resulting in the breach of over 17,000 mutants. Mid-July, Foundation Reconnaissance reports that a number of mutant communities have cropped up, most of them generally attempting to imitate human society, which is not really a surprise to anyone since they're still pretty human. This statement, though, is pretty indicative of how detached the Foundation has become from recognizing these people as anything but deranged anomalies, although they are still working to neutralize the mutations to save people. By this point, the accumulation of anomalous activity is starting to become noticeable on a geological scale, and strange weather events such as hails of biting skulls and sentient lightning storms are making travel and construction hazardous. By September, resources are getting even thinner, and food and water shortages at a containment area result in over 400 mutant deaths within a week. The director of the containment area makes the unauthorized decision to shut down the operation, releasing 11,000 mutants. In other words, the Foundation leaders would rather these mutants starve in containment than be released. Some time ticks by, and in January of 2021, a new MTF is formed, consisting of mutants that remained loyal to the Foundation after conversion. The Foundation doesn't mind slaughtering these people, but they're not above using them as weapons either. The world outside of the Orange Zone is becoming increasingly dangerous to travel through, as the mutations have affected practically every plant and animal around. By March, we learn that the Foundation's work has done some good and the world will still be hospitable to life in 2024, unlike their prior projection. But now that number has moved to 2027 instead. A year and a half goes by with little notable events, until it's revealed that a number of Foundation personnel have been secretly aiding and abetting the Serpent's Hand for at least the last two years. We heard from one of these individuals... Tilda Moose last time when discussing the potential cost these powers would take from humanity. In July of the year 2023, the city of Tucson is overrun by mutants, and an MTF is killed in action after several mutants hijack some giant automated combat drones and reprogram them. January of 2024, the tree insect entity that started all of this, SCP-3396, suddenly begins ascending into the upper atmosphere, and all Foundation Thaumic scanning equipment worldwide simultaneously reads a single word, Thrive. A sudden spike of anomalous activity across the globe accelerates the timeline of Earth's inhospitality back to April of 2024. One month later, in February, 
The three remaining O5 council members vote to authorize the use of the 99th iteration of Procedure Lilac, with two voting in favor and one opposed. Procedure 99 Lilac is very different than the first, and the plan is to use thomobaric stratosphere cluster charge munitions and detonate them over each of the planet's remaining land masses. This will lead to creating a destructive endothomic reaction on a planetary scale, violently rejecting all blue matter formations and attached physical tissues from every mutant outside of the orange zone. This of course means the death of every single uncontained mutant, but the planet will, in theory, be saved. In this event, what the Foundation dubs an XK-class Foundation apotheosis scenario, the only remnants of humanity that will exist will be in Foundation containment. Afterwards, the Foundation will attempt to go back to business to help recontain any other anomalies, and civilization will begin to regrow out from the Orange Zone. Former mutants that survived prior lilac procedures will form the basis of this new population. Since I know you're wondering why they wouldn't just use SCP-2000 to repopulate the Earth, the author says that the biomatter reserves held within SCP-2000 that are used to create humans were also infected with blue matter, and would therefore be purged as well. It's possible they could use it down the line again, but it's not viable immediately. The Foundation admits that being the deliberate cause of such an XK-class scenario is their ultimate failure, but they will use the opportunity to start clean and to make a better world. Let's find out how that all goes, shall we? We'll get to the aftermath of that decision in a little bit, but the tale Thrive starts out in the midst of the failing war against the remaining mutants during the Foundation's reclamation of Tucson. An MTF armed in exoskeletons marches through the city, one of the members equipped with a ghost thrower, powered by a separate human heart. They attempt to announce to the mutants that they still have a chance to cooperate, but they are swiftly attacked by a woman covered in tiger fur with bone spears jutting out of her body. One of the team utilizes a rifle that causes lightning bolts to strike the affected target and the rest unload with their various weaponry. The one with the ghost thrower lets loose with a sound like a chainsaw cutting through desperate wails as a faint blue light swirling with pained faces washes over the enemy. One of the targets, a mutant that appears as a person-shaped hole in space, gets ripped apart by the spectral emulsions until blackened bones become visible and they crumble apart. The ghost thrower gets sweeped over a number of mutants, one that appears as a dense cloud of birds, one as a tall man in a suit with a knot of gears where his head should have been, one that was a many-armed beast seemingly made out of plush, and three that just looked normal. The ghost successfully devoured all of them. Another member of the team fires a silent belt-fed machine gun, that causes gnashing mouths to appear wherever it's pointed, devouring targets from the inside. Next, we catch back up with Armando, who is currently seated on a floating web of interlinked arms among the clouds, held aloft by a large bundle of helium-filled arms. 
He comes up here to reflect, while leaving some arms down below to monitor for any danger. He thinks back to when he first discovered his anomalous trait, when he was 15 and got his arm stuck in a derelict garage that he had been poking around in. A large pile of assorted junk had collapsed on top of him, trapping and breaking his arm. He tried to free himself, hoping that he could just put things back the way they were and maybe no one would get mad. As he yanked his arm out, of course, it disconnected, and Armando vomited as a new arm grew out of the stump, one a different skin tone than his own. He quickly grabbed a bag filled with food, toys, and a picture of his family, and ran away. He rejected his arms at first, pulling them off, crushing them, hacking at them, because they felt foreign and invasive. At the start, he couldn't even control them, and barely felt anything through them. He of course also grew arms that weren't human, made of metal or popcorn or wood. Through time and some practice though, he became more accustomed to them, and when he eventually got two arms with similar skin tone to the rest of him, he buried the rest and tried to live normally. He ended up falling in with a bad group that welcomed his anomalous power, but he felt like just another tool in their toolbox. During a deal involving some anomalous goods, the deal went south, and as Armando tried to flee from the crime scene, he got picked up by a group of agents in black tactical gear, who shoved him into a van, after which he woke up in the care of the SCP Foundation. At one point he actually managed to break free from containment by fighting his way out, but he lost control of his arms and ended up killing an innocent. He realized that he could never truly be free as he was, and so he let them take him back. Partway into the Apotheosis timeline, the SCP facility where Armando was held was being evacuated, and while being transported to the Orange Zone, the convoy was attacked by mutants. The wall of Armando's cell sparkled and turned to salt before being blown away by the breeze, and Armando was greeted by a four-eyed woman. She asked him if he was coming with them, or if he wanted them to drop him back off at the site. Armando quickly accepted, and was converted, describing it as like a baptism. He says that whatever force was moving his arms beforehand was gone now, replaced by this new power. Armando watches as SCP-3396 ascends into the sky, and for the first time, he feels truly free. Fast forward again to when the Foundation unleashes their greatest weapon imaginable. Tilda Moose stands in an area that used to be Chicago, but is now only a desert composed of obsidian. She and others around her begin to rise into the air, half because of their own will, and half because of the force from above them, SCP-3396. She only dimly feels the impact of the Foundation's missiles as her physical body gets torn apart, and she calls the Foundation's actions pathetic. The mutants were now far beyond humanity, and the Foundation had really only harmed themselves. As they ascended into the sky, she wondered if they would be enslaved to this entity, or if their personal identities would be stripped away as they are fused together. She wondered, as she did before, what the cost of this all would be. Then suddenly she understood, 
that this benefit had been determined long, long ago by whatever forces had created humanity in the first place. As for who exactly that was, Tilda was sure she would find out eventually, as she had all the time in the multiverse now. 05-8 looks out across the burning Pacific Ocean as this happens, and smiles sadly. He looks up and sees the mutants hovering in space and looking down at him, and he is very proud that so many of them had survived. It seems that 05-8 is certainly not a normal human himself, as he had spent many thousands of years looking after humanity and watching us grow as a species. He admits that he had been more partial to the ocean-going species, but they had turned out to be less intelligent than the primates. As he looks out at the devastation, though, he wonders if they weren't actually way more intelligent. In time, he had grown to love humans, though, bearing their sorrows on his shoulders and watching as they built great cities. He had seen promise in the Foundation's goals since their inception, but was concerned that they might be a tad zealous. Ultimately, they were a necessary requirement for human life to go on, and although he could have done the job entirely himself if he put his back into it, he appreciated the help. He instead chose to watch them operate from the inside, so that he could steer them in the right direction. He realizes that he completely failed in that pursuit, but it doesn't matter anymore. For the first time, humanity was truly free, and he could finally unburden himself from the weight he's been carrying for so long. As he does, he hears the horrifying unified roar of thousands of cosmic abominations that suddenly became aware of Earth's existence. This entity had been keeping our planet hidden for millennia to protect us, but now that protection was removed because humanity had evolved. The horde of abominations begin tearing through space towards Earth, intent on consuming it as part of a long line of devoured planets. A woman appears next to the O5, asking him if this is how he wants to play it. The O5 considered her to be the single most violent, barbaric, and disgusting thing that he was aware of, and she was also his sister. Who these entities are doesn't really matter, as they are both supremely powerful, and it seems that one of them has been protecting us from the other. She's surprised at his sudden laxity, but he says that he has no reason to keep holding her back, because there are no more people for her to enslave and devour. He tells her that she's free to gnaw on the entire cosmos if she wishes, but he warns her that there are some rather disagreeable entities on the way here, and they'll kill them both. The woman wonders what the O5 will do now that there are no more humans to protect, jokingly asking him if he'll guard the rocks now. He says that he might actually do that, because he has no other purpose. His purpose in life has been defined by humanity, and he contains their sorrow, their pain, their endurance, and their memory. He stopped them from being animals, taught them, and protected them. He mentions that their elder brother has decided that humanity's time has finally come, and they don't need him anymore. Instead, he's going to do what he's always done, endure, 
and he will face the horde of abominations swiftly coming for the earth. He summons a colossal anchor that twists nearby space with its sheer cosmic mass and extinguishes every fire in a hundred mile radius as it suddenly appears. He hefts it onto his shoulder and asks his sister if she'll join him. The woman, containing the hunger, lust, ferocity, and rage of what had used to be humanity, smiles and says that just this once, she will. She disappears as an ocean of flesh explodes out from beneath the bedrock of North America, comprised of the rotting, shrieking corpses from thousands of years. The former Foundation Overseer armors himself in plates of the purest stone, hewn from the agony and valor of Earth's most sacred and worthy dead. He gathers what remains of the planet's oceans and ascends into the sky as the eternal guardian of the soul of humanity. And together, the two waged their final war. Another Overseer, O5-1, steps out from his bunker with a much different attitude, one of rage and grief at the Foundation's failure. They had protected humanity for so long because it was the only thing he'd ever loved for the last 2,000 years, but now he was alone. He lets out a roar of frustration at the blue star in the sky that is SCP-3396. He then says to himself that he'd do it all over again a thousand times, even if he knew that they would still fail. He is bitter about what humanity has chosen, betraying the foundation and normalcy by going along with an entity that is nothing more than a mockery of true life. He says that had humanity stood with the foundation rather than against them, they could have defeated this anomalous threat and endured as they've always endured. Instead, they were seduced by power, and although they've become akin to gods now, he says that they have become less than human, not more. The individual known as Nobody appears, implied to be the Foundation's administrator, and O5-1 asks him why he abandoned the Foundation when they needed him more than ever. The administrator simply says that it wasn't the greater good anymore, and that's that. Finally, let's catch back up with Monica, who has now transcended to become a massive floating entity covered in towering metal spires, each the size of a small city. The towers contain enough power to vaporize entire solar systems, and with one thought she could reduce light years of space to a hot slurry of base particles. Her power was infinite in the truest sense of the word, and nestled in the center of this massive assembly of endlessly destructive engines was the form of a human woman. Monica kept this form here as a sense of nostalgia of what she used to be, as she had now lost her humanity completely. She had kept her memories, and still knew herself as Monica, and even though she had devoured the internet and was aware of all human knowledge, she still couldn't forget who she was. And she didn't want to. She is aware of other survivors near her, such as Dozer and his engineers, who had fused together into one form, a monolithic citadel with miles of carvings of people and structures. Ogre and someone named Violet had married and woven their essences together, now existing as a great menagerie of plants and animals across dozens of floating islands. 
On the largest island were two thrones where they sat, looking out upon the lives they had saved with pride and affection. Norman was now a nameless, moon-sized mass of flesh amidst a sea of luminous blue-green water. Great leviathan shapes moved under the waves, creatures created by Norman, and his mind unreeled for light years in all directions, hunting for minds to discover and learn from. There were thousands of entities like these, each one an expression of a human mind let loose from the constraints of possibility. Below them, the earth burned and shuddered, with little life remaining from the Foundation's destructive capabilities. The continents had cracked, the seas had boiled, and all the while, the entity responsible for all this had simply carried on. The tree it had been had grown until its tendrils had overtaken much of the western U.S., and once the world began to burn, it ascended into the sky, indifferent to the suffering and destruction. Now it simply hovered amongst the changed humans, simultaneously comforting and terrifying. Monica reflects on the SCP Foundation, a group she never had much love for, but she understands now that they had served a purpose in protecting humanity. She knows that she would not exist if not for their work throughout history, but she thinks that it's fitting now that they would die upon finally being rendered obsolete. She had gone to some of the Foundation members that still remained before she ascended, and tried to convince them to see reason. Surely the definition of anomalous no longer mattered at this point, and it would be better to let outdated principles and prejudices go in the face of eternity. Instead, they had spat in her face, because they would rather normalcy be absolute than live one more day sharing a planet with such monsters. The changed humans no longer needed Earth, though, as the rest of the cosmos contained only potential, and they would go out there and thrive. Monica sheds one final tear for those that had fallen to ignorance and pride and pointless strife, a droplet of molten metal drifting through space. Then she signals to her people, and together they leave the Earth behind. Alone in its orbit, the entity responsible for all this watched and was pleased, because it had known the potential of humanity, and now it was realized. It also knew that this full potential would be needed to withstand what they would encounter in the cosmos. So that's it for Apotheosis, a tale in which the abnormal becomes the new normal, the Foundation burns the world to cinders in a rage against the betrayal of humanity, and a new collection of gods sets out to explore the universe. As usual, my summarizations tend to remove a lot of the poetic writing that makes stories like this enjoyable to read, leaving us largely with the facts. The Apotheosis canon is a very different take on the SCP universe, and while there can be many arguments about how exactly a scenario like this would play out, this is the story the authors wanted to tell. This isn't the first of its kind to affect humanity on such a wide scale, nor is it the first where the SCP Foundation fails in their goals, but it is a unique blend of comic book style action, SCP oddities, and philosophical concepts. It's a rare instance where the Earth burning to cinders and the SCP Foundation completely failing isn't really a bad